So we finished the books, the letters to the Thessalonian church, and we're now going to focus on looking at the life of Jesus, and particularly the life of Jesus coming up to the cross and to the resurrection. And today we're going to be looking at the anointing of Jesus before his burial, uh, something that we might see as sort of inconsequential, something that isn't really all that important. And yet Jesus, in the exact opposite of that, takes it and says, what this woman has done will be preached wherever the gospel is preached and to the ends of the earth. That's how important. He raises it up to the highest level. And I think, why is that? Because of the level of devotion. Her level of devotion to the Lord. What is devotion? Here's Merriam-Webster. It could mean a religious fervor. A piety, a devotion to the Lord. It can certainly refer to an act of prayer or private worship. Do you do your devotions every day? So an act, something like that. Or the fact or state of being ardently dedicated and loyal. And I think that second definition is what we see here exemplified in this anointing of Jesus. Someone who says Jesus is worth everything. He's worth giving everything to, he's worth dying for, he's worth living for, he is worth my all. Look with me, we're going to look at Matthew 26, verses 6 to 16. So we're going to cover the anointing of Jesus and then a little bit about Judas as well as it fits in with what we'll see here. Matthew 26, 6 to 16, we read this. Now when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper... A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. But you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to look at sort of three different groups or three different people. Uh, First, Mary, who demonstrates true devotion in verses 6 and 7. The apostles, lump them all together, who question such devotion. And then finally, Judas, who is devoted to something else entirely as we'll see, to idolatry. But look at Mary here. What a story uh, about Mary. First, it says here, they're in Bethany. Bethany was a town there. And they're specifically in the house of whom we're told is Simon the leper. Now, what do we know about Simon the leper? Nothing but what it says right here. This is it. This is all we know about Simon the leper. There was a man named Simon, and he was, Simon, and he was a leper. So that's what we know about him. Most likely was a leper. Uh, not is a leper, because if he has leprosy, which is a contagious skin disease, he wouldn't be having guests over his house. (laughs) So the likelihood is Simon was someone who was healed 
by Jesus. So when you're a leper, you are ostracized. You're pushed away from everyone else. You're considered unclean. And now, what a difference. A full 180 in his life where he's inviting guests over to his home and welcoming them in for a fellowship. So it happens here at Simon the Leper's house, and it's described here as a woman. Now, this story comes up in two of the other Gospels, John and Mark, and we're told who the woman is. So we know this is actually Mary. Uh, You say, well, that doesn't help, Pastor Rick, because there's a lot of Marys, right? Not Mary, the mother of Jesus. Not Mary of Magdala, Mary Mary Magdalene. Another Mary, third Mary. Uh, This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And that should be important, as we'll see in a little bit, because she's seen the power of Jesus to raise the dead. Her brother Lazarus was dead, and Jesus raised him because he is the resurrection and the life. She goes in to this group of men, these apostles, all gathered, sitting there, reclining at the table, eating. And she takes an alabaster flask. What is alabaster? It looks like a sort of white marble. Imagine like white marble. So here's uh, in Italy an alabaster shop owner who's sort of uh, working on alabaster. Kind of a nice, beautiful sort of flask. And we're told a very expensive ointment. Um, We actually know a little bit more than that from the word that's used here in the Greek. Uh, It's a type of nard uh, made in India. Very expensive. In fact, it says right here, it's very expensive. Probably the most valuable thing that Mary owns. So she's taking the most valuable thing she owns and was only really used on special occasions. You can imagine the first century world was a smelly world. Okay, so um, in fact, they say if we could go back in time and any time in history beyond like 100 years, the thing that would probably stand out the most to us would be the smells, <laughs> the, the body odors and the, all, the, you know, all these different sort of rotting foods. And you know, it's a smelly world. And so having something nice, expensive, like nard is valuable. But this nard was typically used for a person's burial as a way to treat the body with great respect because of your belief in the resurrection, Jews in particular would anoint the body with nard. Well, she takes it and she pours it on Jesus' head. Not dabbles a little bit. <laughs> Not, uh, you know, sort of puts her finger in it and just puts a little bit on, you know, on the top of his head. She pours it all out. She gives it all to Jesus as he sits there and reclines at the table. Notice a few things about this before we move on. Uh, Mary knew Jesus. So this isn't sort of a spur-of-the-moment decision, uh, just sort of felt the Spirit move and just did it. Mary actually had a relationship with Jesus as a rabbi and as a teacher. She had listened to his teaching multiple times, for sure. She had seen his miracles, particularly, of course, with her brother Lazarus. And so as she's listening to his teaching, she hears what he's saying about his death. Uh, Something that the disciples, by the way, are terrible at. They sort of overlook it. Every time Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to die as a ransom for many, they sort of move on and say, yeah, but who of us is the greatest Jesus? I mean, they, they totally ignore the fact that he keeps talking about the purpose for his coming is for this hour, the hour of his death. Well, here's Mary 
and who this doesn't go unnoticed to, as she's listening to what she's saying and realizing, you, you apostles aren't getting it. You're, you're not listening to what he's saying. Now, she could go in there and just yell at everyone, which would be very uncommon in that time, right? For a woman to step in in the first century. Or she could grab burial anointing oil and make her point by pouring it out on his head. Of course, this is a, an extravagant <laughs> thing to do. Uh, it's, it's, again, probably the most valuable thing that Mary owns. It's an act of radical devotion. Spurgeon said she showed, she thus showed that at least one heart in the world thought nothing was too good for her Lord. And the best of the best ought to be given to him. May she have many imitators in every age until Jesus comes again. <laughs> Amen? Of course, you might say, well, if she thought Jesus was dying and she got the idea that he's dying, then it is kind of a waste, right? I mean, what's the point of pouring it out on a man who will be dead in a week unless you have faith beyond this world, unless you really do believe that he is the resurrection and the life and that all who believe in him will never die? It's an act of radical devotion. It's an act of radical faith. Also notice that she doesn't care that there are people around who will mock her, which we'll see in the next section here. She doesn't say, Jesus, can you come with me in private for a second? There's something I want to talk to you about. There's something I want to show you. She barges in right there in front of everyone and pours out her oil. Friends, let's follow her example. Let's follow her example. How do we do that? Show radical devotion. That's the type of discipleship Jesus calls us to. Uh, Radical devotion with your time. Uh, I remember hearing growing up, uh, I went to a church that said, not here, that said, uh, God only requires one hour a week. Uh, No. (laughs) You will not find that teaching anywhere in the Bible ever. He requires uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, except on leap years. Then he requires that last... 366th day. It's all his. That doesn't mean we spend all day every day in church, of course, gathered. But all is his. When we're time sitting there playing with our kids on the floor, when we are at work, when we're resting, when we're sitting there watching TV, that all belongs to the Lord just the same. Radical devotion with your resources. This is where the rubber meets the road, right? People say, I'll serve Jesus, I'll go to church. I'll go to a Bible study. I'll talk all about theology. I'll read the Bible. You know, you're supposed to be tithing. No, 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 that's a little too much. I'm not going to go to that step. (laughs) Some people put a limit right there. It's all his. And again, I just thank you guys at First Baptist for being an exception to that and being generous and faithful. With your safety and your comfort, will you go where Jesus calls you to go? Will you talk to whom Jesus calls you to talk to? Maybe there's that conversation you know you need to have with someone. Maybe a non-Christian family member. And this Easter, this Lent season, Jesus wants you to have that conversation as uncomfortable as it may seem. And one more before we go on. Radical devotion means with your family. And I think that's one of the hardest of all, Right? It's easy to say, I'll, I'll, it's easier to say, I'll serve Jesus with my whole all, but please don't take my spouse and don't take my kids and let them be. But it's all his, and we have to trust that God is sovereign and in control, even over 
the destiny and future of our families. In the book, The Insanity of God, this comes at the very end of the book. It's such a powerful statement. There's this one Christian in a very difficult part of the world who's faced incredible amounts of persecution. And the main person who's sort of there, uh, this uh, missionary, asks him what he thought was a pretty innocent question. He says, you know, you never really talk about your wife and your kids. Are they involved in the ministry? The man grabs him with tears in his eyes. And he said, how can God ask it? Tell me, how can he ask it? I've given him everything. My body has been broken. I have been jailed. I've been starved. I've been beaten. I've been left for dead. I've been willing to die for Jesus. But do you know what I fear when I go to bed at night? What keeps me awake and what actually terrifies me is the thought that God might ask of my wife and my children what I have already willingly given him. How can he ask it? Tell me. And in the end, he realizes that Jesus is worth it. And it's time to bring his wife and his kids into his ministry. Very different context than ours. But understanding that there is no limit to the devotion he calls us to as his. How do the apostles respond to this sort of level of radical devotion? Not so good. Not so good. Look at verse 8. Their response is not so great. They see this and they say, they're indignant, first of all. So they're upset as if it was their money, as if it was their oil, (laughs) Um, as if it had any real effect on them other than this. They say, what a waste. What a waste this was to take all that expensive perfume and just pour it out on Jesus' head. That was a complete waste. They see it. They They behold this beautiful, rare act of devotion and can only see numbers. They say specifically, this could have been sold and given to the poor. Now, we do learn from one of the other Gospels that Judas, at least, had a sort of ulterior motive here. That he helped himself, he was the money guy, sort of the treasurer of the group, and he would help himself to some of the money in the pot. So if this very expensive perfume were sold, he's thinking, well, I could skim some right off the top. We don't know if that's true of the other disciples, but certainly here for Judas. Could it have been that the real concern was not for the poor here, but for their own well-being as apostles and what this would have provided for them going forward. Jesus' response is, you always have the poor. That's not a shocking statement. That is true. We see that in every society throughout history. Uh, Deuteronomy 15 says that. There always will be poor in the land. It's not going to stop. This is not a sort of statement disparaging helping the poor. He's not saying you shouldn't help the poor in any way, but he is saying we don't live life like that as a math game. (laughs) You know, well, this could have been sold and given, and so you should never use it this way or or whatnot. He says this is something special. You have me with you for a short period of time. And what she's doing is preparing me for my burial. As Jesus said, if you could gain the whole world but forfeit your soul, what have you really gained? She understands the gospel, something that goes beyond this world, something that goes even beyond poverty alleviation. They don't get it. The apostles just don't get it, not at this point in time. By the way, that's a powerful statement of the truth of what they're writing. Matthew is one of these 12 apostles who's writing this gospel, and he does not look good in this story, right? So, and you see the same thing with, and over and over throughout all four of the gospels. The disciples don't usually come across looking too good. 
And yet they absolutely say include it. Include it because it's true. <laughs> uh, you know, if you, were right, if you were making up this story, it would have been Peter, right? Because he's the leader of the early church who grabs the nard and pours it out on Jesus' head because you want him to look good for the early Christians. Where he, right here as we see, Peter, John, James, Matthew, they're not excluded. They're lumped together in this rebuke from Jesus. And who stands outstanding here? Mary. A woman in the first century who showed up all of these men who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the church. It fits Jesus, doesn't it? It fits his whole ministry. Uh, he, he raises up the outcast, the, the least expected. Uh, a- Ambrose mentioned last week the Samaritan woman that Jesus talked to. The, the least expected person, you would think, gets to be one of the very first to hear that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus looks at what she does. It doesn't see it as a waste, but says it's a beautiful thing. Some things are done not for monetary reasons, but for beauty. Kalos in the Greek, art. The, the value doesn't have a number on it. It's an act of rare devotion that demonstrates her love for Jesus. And then Jesus iterates what I mentioned, that this will be proclaimed in the whole world, along with the gospel. Uh, First of all, why along with the gospel? Because it brings out the gospel. Uh, She recognized his upcoming death, his burial, uh, and ultimately, which would lead to his resurrection. The two are tied together. She got it. She understood the purpose for Jesus' coming. But notice, Jesus already is saying here that this gospel will reach the ends of the world. Now remember, Jesus at this point in time, he's got a handful of followers. You know, he's got his 12 and maybe a few more than that. Um, He's barely left Israel. Israel is not a very big country in the ancient world. I mean, Rome overshadows everything. And he says, by the way, this good news about me dying, that's going to be proclaimed in the entire world. (laughs) So if you want a simple test for the truth of Christianity, here it is. Was Jesus right about the gospel reaching the ends of the world? Um, if, if, it didn't, if it never left Israel, we could easily say Jesus was wrong. He wasn't actually from the Lord. He didn't have that sort of prophetic voice. But here we are, 2,000 years later, and there are about one-third of the planet that claims to follow Christ. Billions and billions of people in almost every part of the world. We'll talk about that later as Pastor Mike shares in just a bit here. We're not quite there. But here Jesus already says that this gospel will reach the ends of the world. And this story, included here by Matthew and by Mark and by John, is included as part of this message. There's something, I think, to apply here to our own sense of devotion to, <clears throat> excuse me, to the Lord. First of all, uh, an issue of priority. Social causes that help the poor are important evangelism and mission is important. No, I didn't say one is important and the other isn't. (laughs) Both important. One will save someone from hunger and is extremely important. The other will save someone's soul from sin and is of ultimate importance. The two are tied together, of course. If someone is hungry, 
you give them a meal, give them a bowl of rice, and then tell them about Jesus, right? You don't do one and then the other, right? And if you're out helping people who are in need, that gives you as a Christian an opportunity to share the message of Jesus. But as he says here, you're always going to have poor. There is a priority in making sure people hear about Christ. I would say also, don't let others neutralize your faith. That's what the disciples are trying to do. Mary, you're over the top. You're too extreme. You need to, you need to take it down a few notches here. <laughs> uh, because you're making us look bad. That's the real motive there too, right? If, if Mary is going over the top, radical in their devotion, and the other apostles didn't think of doing that and didn't do that, it doesn't make them look too good. So what do they do? Out of a little bit of jealousy, rebuke her, try to get her back into her place. Don't let others do that to you. If you are radically devoted to Jesus, let's say you're at a time in life where you're just walking closely with the Lord and you want to grow, don't let people pull you back down. (laughs) Continue to seek and to serve the Lord. And I would say similarly, watch the ones that you least expect. Nobody would have expected that of all, Mary would be the one who does this here. We, We sometimes expect that it'll be the religious or the clean cut, the upstanding who will be used most potently by the Lord. Sometimes it's the people you least expect. Sometimes it's the guy serving a life sentence who has a ministry in prison of getting Bibles to his fellow inmates and dies. Free from now his imprisonment and with the Lord. Do the opposite. Do the opposite of what the disciples did here. Uh, that's a good policy for a lot of what we see of the apostles. Do the opposite of what they do, right? Uh, not always. Sometimes they're on, they're on the mark. But here, let's praise and let's make much of radical faith. That's what Jesus does. When he sees radical faith, he, he praises it. He sets it up as an example. But when the widow comes in and drops in her last two pennies, Jesus says, there's an example for you of faithful giving. Jesus raises up devotion. Let's do the same. Not out of jealousy, tearing it down, but the opposite, raising it up. And then we come to Judas. And I wanted to include this second, this uh, paragraph, um, because I think there's a reason why Matthew puts it right after what we just saw with Mary. Some will be devoted to idols. Verses 14 and 16. We're given the extreme opposite, really, of Mary here. We're described, he's described as one of the twelve. Now that's important. Jesus had hundreds of disciples, men and women, by the way, who followed him. But he only had twelve apostles. These were meant to be his closest, special group of followers. Like we said, Mary wasn't even included in that group here. And of course, there's a theological reason. They represent the, the twelve Tribes of Israel, the, the new Israel, in a sense, the renewed Israel in Jesus that he is setting up here. And yet one of them, Judas Iscariot, goes to the chief priests. Very important here, by the way. Uh, the chief priests were not the Pharisees. I know we kind of mix those two groups together. Uh, but Pharisees were, think of your, your local clergymen. That's the Pharisees. Uh, They were kind of respected by that local community. They're all over the land of Israel, up in Galilee and so forth. The priests were different. They worked only in Jerusalem, only near the temple. And they were the more compromised, clearly. 
They had more power from Rome. They had more compromise with Rome. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They sort of had a different view of things. It's them that Judas goes to, not the Pharisees here. And notice, he asked them, what will you give me? Uh, Mary asked the exact opposite question, right? What can I do to give to him? What can I give him? How can I show my devotion and my love for him? Judas is, what can I get from him? And it's initiated by him. Uh, he, he didn't, they didn't come to him and say, hey, would you be interested in betraying Jesus? He goes to them looking for greedy gain. And they make a, they strike an agreement for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, 30 pieces of silver, by the way, is not nothing in that culture, but it's not that much. It's not that much. We have a couple examples in the Old Testament. Um, for example, the Midianite traders, they draw Joseph, they, the ones who Joseph is sold to, and that's way back in Genesis and so forth. He's sold for 20 shekels of silver. So with inflation, <laughs> you'd imagine, that's about what he gets sold for, the price there of Joseph. Exodus 21, if an ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox will be stoned. So, price of an injured servant he's traded for. You know, I I think in some way, and then it says he looks for an opportune time to betray Jesus. So at any point in time, he could have said, you know what, I made a mistake. I should never have gone to the chief priest. I'm not going to do it. But time after time, he looks for an opportunity. He waits like a spider looking for a chance to devour its prey. I think we give, if you haven't noticed, Judas far too much credit. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes you'll see this in movies and things like that. They try to sort of give a justification for Judas. Judas is a slime ball. Okay, that's my my view, if I could say so here. Uh, Yes, there may have been other motives for him. Did he no longer believe Jesus was the Messiah? Yeah, it's very possible he no longer believed Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, Was he bitter about things like what just happened, all that sort of nard being used instead of uh, being sold off? Was he jealous? Was he jealous that Peter was the one who got most of the attention and he's just a fisherman and here is this guy who's got perhaps more education and he's not getting the credit? Or maybe he's listening to the priests and the Pharisees and they're not convinced by Jesus. So he's saying, look, if they're not convinced, maybe I'm, I'm being led astray into a cult. And all of those are possible motives. But you know what the Bible does? It doesn't give us any of those motives. It gives us only one. And that is his greed. He loved money. That's why he did it. And he had all he needed. It wasn't like he lacked. It wasn't like he was living in poverty. I like what Matthew Henry says. What did, Jesus, uh, what did Judas want? I mean, what did he lack? What did he need? Was not he welcome wherever his master was? Did he not fare as Christ fared? <laughs> Every meal that Jesus was welcome to, Judas could enjoy too. It is not the lack, but the love of money that is the root of all evil. Judas was a devoted disciple of money. He served nothing above his master, which is greed. Now, let's watch our own hearts. The reason why I'm bashing here on Judas is because we need to guard our own hearts from the same thing. 
we might find ourselves like Judas, devoted to stuff or our own safety or security or bank account. It's a gift. If God blesses us, you know, money, wealth is a gift. Uh, have lots of it, sure, and use it for something good and something great. There are other idols too. Anything that we worship above God. And think about it. Would you trade your faith in for any other thing? Would you say to God, there's that, I'll do anything for you, Lord, but there's this one thing I will not do. Or this, this one thing, if it happens in my life, I'm going to give up my faith in you. There's this one limit. If there is, friends, you are staring face to face with your idol and what takes the place of God. Judas is, no doubt, one of the most despicable characters we see in all the Bible and maybe in all of history. But he should cause us to look at our own hearts and take heed lest we fall. Jesus and his sacrifice are worthy of our devotion. We might see, some may be listening online or present, the Christian faith as sort of a tack-on to life. It's sort of a little extra, right? You live your life, and then by the way, I go to church and I have this little faith thing that I do on the side. (laughs) The Bible never gives us that option. It's sort of all or nothing. You're either all in and you're going to follow Jesus and he can ask anything of you and all belongs to him or you don't really follow him. That's sort of the picture in scripture. This Lent, let's offer to God our devotion of gratitude and service and worship and do it in joy. But first and foremost, let's see his devotion to us. What Judas did here, and right before him, what Mary symbolized, set in motion, of course, a path, one-way path to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus gave everything to save us. He died our death, that he might conquer death for us. Pray with me. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for the example of Scripture. And we look at someone like Mary of Bethany here and just rejoice. Rejoice that, as Spurgeon said, there is one heart, at least in the first century, that sees Jesus for who he is and is radically devoted to him. And Lord, we fail. (laughs) We're not perfect. We're not even where Mary is. I think I could speak for, if not all of us, most of us. Help us, Lord. Help us to follow her example and to see you as you truly are, worthy of everything. During this Lent season, Lord, as we seek to truly be devoted to you, help us to see more clearly where real devotion comes, and that is in your devotion to us. You laid down your life for sinners. It's all there is. It's all there is in this world. You laid down your life for sinners to save us, to make us your own, to purchase us for eternity. We celebrate, we worship, we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.